Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and begot a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And he begot, after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and begot sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he indeed he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence so the Lord looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth and God said to Noah the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold I will destroy them with the earth make yourself an ark of gopher wood make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing the flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, and which is the breath of life, and everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. You shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, in our study of Genesis in recent weeks, we have been tracing the history of Two lines of descent, two family lines, the line of Cain, the son of, first son of Adam and Eve, and the line of Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve. They're 
middle son being, having been murdered didn't have any descendants. So we have Cain's line and Seth's line. And Cain's line was a line of hard-working, creative, inventive people. But they were also disobedient. They were filled with anger, murderous rage, fear, pride, self-trust, cruelty, and a failure to call upon the name of the Lord in true worship. They were advanced in their civilization, but not advanced in righteousness at all. In fact, just the opposite. God had spoken to Adam and Eve about her seed and the seed of the serpent. And we see Cain's line as the seed of the serpent. That is, human beings who have aligned themselves with Satan and become slaves of evil. But Seth's line is a different line. This is a line that calls on the name of the Lord, a phrase that refers to corporate worship. And these are the, the godly people, the, the sons of God, uh, characterized by people like Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him. God gave the ancient world, even before Adam and Eve died, a, uh, a picture. You know, at that time, Cain was the only one who had died that, uh, that we know of. Uh, gives them a picture that God is more powerful than death. And uh, so uh, uh, Enoch, seventh in line from Adam, is a stark contrast to Lamech, seventh in line from Cain's line, who boasted about taking vengeance into his own hand and murdering a person just for slightly injuring him. Also in Seth's line, there is another Lamech, uh, again, because of a similar name to the seventh from Adam in Cain's line, the two Lamechs invite a comparison and contrast. Uh, the comparison is very brief. Their names are the same. The contrast is stark. Uh, one boasts about putting himself in the place of God, taking vengeance into his own hands, murderous vengeance. The other puts his hope in the seed of the woman. In fulfill, uh, God had promised a deliverer through the seed of the woman. And so he looks to his own son, names him Noah, meaning comfort, praying that uh, through him there would be comfort from the curse that God had put upon the earth. Uh, he was a man of faith, faith in the promises of God. Well, we saw also that the sons of God, the, the, the godly line, married anybody they chose from the daughters of men. Uh, they did not uh, keep apart from that which was evil. But uh, uh, the church became corrupt. And when the church became corrupt, God's patience wore thin. He said, in 120 years, I'm going to destroy the earth. That would give Noah enough time to, to build the ark and so forth. But uh, he had determined that that he would destroy the earth because of all the wickedness. And, uh, but he would save Noah and his family so that the, uh, the promises made to Adam and Eve might yet be fulfilled in humanity. Uh, now, tonight I want to look with you at this man, Noah. And my message this evening is a little different, or structured differently than, than most of my uh, sermons in that I, I just want to bring out some, uh, some information about Noah. Information about Noah that is sometimes overlooked, 
but needs to be kept in mind if we are to understand all that transpires in Genesis chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, uh, which deals with Noah and the flood and so forth. If we're to, to have a proper understanding, we need to lay a foundation of understanding and understanding this main man Noah, for indeed he is a, a pivotal character in redemptive history, a very important character in redemptive history. And so I want to bring before you some facts about this man. And the first of all, I want to say that he was a man of faith. Now, our text doesn't say that explicitly. It does say it implicitly when it says in verse uh, 9, Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. Now, Enoch also walked with God. And when we dealt with Enoch, we saw that walking with God meant a life of faith. But we're told we don't have to just infer that. We can, we can know explicitly that he is a man of faith because of what we read in Hebrews, the New Testament, Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, he built the ark, and by faith, he was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, what is this righteousness that comes by faith? Well, in Paul's letter to the Romans, you may recall that he deals with two kinds of righteousness. There is the righteousness of the law and the righteousness that is a gift of God that comes by faith. The righteousness of the law is is uh, obtained by obeying the law, by obeying it perfectly. Anyone who would obey the law perfectly in every detail would be righteous by law. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were righteous by law. Jesus Christ is the only other human who was ever righteous by law. But for the rest of us, that ship has sailed. Uh, that righteousness is not available to us anymore because we were born and conceived in sin. We are inclined to hate both God and our neighbor. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. And so there is no hope for us with regard to salvation when it comes to righteousness by the law. But there is a righteousness that is by faith. That is a righteousness that is credited to those who are of faith. And the righteousness is God's righteousness manifested in the life of Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness and satisfaction. As uh, uh, Tim Keller likes to say, uh, he lived the life we should have lived. Died the death we should have died. The catechism says uh, Christ's perfect righteousness and satisfaction. Righteousness is his act of obedience. Satisfaction is his submitting to the penalty of the law on our behalf. That righteousness is credited to us through faith in Christ. And on the basis of that righteousness, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Some theologians call it an alien righteousness as opposed to a native righteousness. A native righteousness would be something intrinsic to us. Native meaning uh, from us, uh, uh, emanating from inside of us. Alien meaning something foreign, something that, that comes to us from outside us. And, and the righteousness by faith, which is by faith is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is outside of us, that is credited to us through faith. And this is the kind of righteousness that, that uh, 
that Noah had through faith. The righteousness that is that comes by faith. By nature, the thoughts of Noah's hearts were evil, and he was a sinner. But he was a man of faith. And uh, we're told it was not just a dead faith, it was a living faith, because uh, he was a man who was perfect in his generations. Again, verse 9. Uh, some translations have there, he was blameless in his generations. That word perfect or blameless does not mean sinless, but it does mean uh, having integrity. His faith had integrity. His, his faith was not uh, an act of hypocrisy. His good works, his, his, the fruit of good works, demonstrated that his faith was real. It's summed up in the phrase that you find uh, in verse 8, by Noah, by, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That is, grace is unmerited favor. Noah discovered that God had been gracious to him and given him the gift of faith and through faith credited him with the perfect righteousness of the Savior yet to come. The Savior had not yet come, but God knew he was coming, knew that the, the Savior would fulfill all righteousness and in anticipation of what Christ would do, he is credited with righteousness uh, through faith. Now, I, I emphasize that point because I want you to understand that Old Testament saints are saved just like New Testament saints are saved on the basis of the perfect righteousness and satisfaction of Jesus Christ being credited to us through the instrument of faith. Faith is not itself meritorious, uh, but it is the instrument through which the merit of Christ is credited to us. In the Old Testament, it was done in anticipation of what Jesus would do. Uh, and all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament taught them what Jesus would do from the time that Jesus that God killed animals in order to take away the shame and disgrace, to cover the shame and disgrace of Adam and Eve from that time forward. They knew that uh, a Savior would come to take away their sin and provide righteousness for them, cover their guilt, cover their shame, and uh, make them righteous in the sight of God. And so they look forward in faith to the coming of Christ as we look back upon His finished work. But all of us are saved the same way, by grace, through faith, on the basis of the perfect righteousness and satisfaction of Jesus Christ. That's one thing to keep in mind. He was a man of faith, a man who was righteous by faith, who had the righteousness that comes by faith. But we also read that, uh, that he was a preacher. Now, again, uh, that's implied in our text, but it's made explicit in Second Peter chapter 5 where we read, God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, when it says a preacher of righteousness, that doesn't mean that he merely preached the law and condemned his generation for their sins. You know, all law and no hope, no grace. Uh, he was... Righteous by the righteousness which is by faith. And so if he was a preacher of righteousness, he would have called that generation to repent of their sins and to put their faith in the promised seed of the woman who would defeat their enemy and bring them back on God's side, on God's side by taking away their shame and guilt as he had taken away Adam and Eve's shame and guilt through the death of animals. Uh, 
he would have called them to repentance. Now, he didn't have a great deal of success. His generation was very wicked. They were wicked with respect to their hearts. They were wicked with respect to their actions. We read in verse 5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of the heart, the thoughts of the heart, was only evil continually. And out of the heart come the issues of life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we read then uh, in verses 11 and 12, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, because their hearts were corrupt. Corrupt hearts produced violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The corruptions and violence appear to be to be unchecked. There's nothing holding it back. Why would God do that? Well, He did it. These things happen to them for our sake. We read in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happen to them for our sake so that we might be warned that none of us should ever think that we're better than anybody else. We all by nature are corrupt in our hearts and by nature are given to violence. There's not one sin that's ever been committed that you and I are not capable of. And it's only the grace of God that that holds us back, that restrains us, that that keeps us from becoming as bad as we, we are able to be. He shows us in that generation that left unchecked, the world devolves into murderous violence and hatred. The world devolves into great turmoil and chaos and anarchy and unrestrained violence. That's what all human beings, that's what you and I are capable of apart from the grace of God. And God would have been justified at that point to give up on that generation and give up on the human race and just say, okay, that's it. But one thing stopped him. His word. He had promised He'd made a promise, and God keeps His promises. And so He preserved Noah, and in preserving Noah, He preserves the human race, and He preserves the seed of the woman, so that the promise of the gospel may be fulfilled. Now, it must have been very difficult for Noah during that time as a preacher of righteousness to see his generation so violent, so wicked, and and so unrepentant. But he persevered. And he persevered by the Spirit of Christ that was in him. God gave him strength. And by the same Spirit in us that has been poured out on the church of Jesus Christ, we need to persevere in a wicked and adulterous generation, a a violent and wicked generation. We need to persevere in being the church. There is no hope for the world apart from the church of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for the world apart from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and His saving work. If we're to bring peace to our troubled cities, if we're to bring reconciliation between those who are bigoted and prejudiced, we must bring the gospel. We must show the world that the gospel is true by getting rid of all anger and malice and envy and rage and bitterness and jealousy and malicious talk. We must love as we have been loved and forgive as we have been forgiven and be instruments of peace in this world to show the world the light of the gospel. Let your light shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. Let your light shine that the world may see it and give
give praise to our Father in heaven. That's what the world needs now more than anything else. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And we also are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that we might declare the righteous deeds of Him who brought us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And though the world accuse you of evil, and it does, nevertheless let your light shine that they may see your good works and give praise to Him on the day that He visits. Now the third thing that we want to take note of here, not only was he a, a, a man of faith, not only was he a preacher of righteousness, but he was God's friend. Now again, that's, that's not stated explicitly, but I think we can say it with authority nonetheless because of what Jesus tells us in John 15, verse 15, about his friends. When God makes friends... With human beings, God does something. He confides in them. He tells them what he's going to do. You know, Abraham is explicitly called a friend of God because God came to him and told him what he was going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. You know? And God came to him and told him what would happen to his descendants for the next 400 years. Uh, he was the friend of God because God came to him and confided in him and told him what he was going to do. And Jesus says in John 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servant, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And you know, this is not only true of Noah and of Abraham and of the disciples, but it's true of you who believe in Jesus Christ as well. You are God's friend. For he has confided in us through the Scriptures what he's going to do. Oh, he hasn't told us every detail of our lives, but we know uh, that it has a happy ending. We know that even though we die, we shall uh, uh, yet be taken up into his presence. Our spirits shall be taken up to his presence in, in heaven. And that when he returns, our bodies shall be raised. The earth shall be renewed, cleansed with fire and renewed. Uh, the new Jerusalem will come down upon the earth. God himself will stand upon the earth and wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more suffering, no more death, no more pain. Everything will be made new. Everything is going to work together for good. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He's told you all these things about your life because you are the friend of God. Noah was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. The disciples were friends of God because God confides and tells us what He's going to do. And He does that in part so that we're not afraid. So that in the midst of pandemics, we don't have to be frightened. We need to be cautious. We need to be prudent. We don't need to be careless. We shouldn't be careless. But we needn't be afraid. We should know that our lives are in His hands He's working all things for our good. Nothing will separate us from His love. He's coming again and, and uh, this present life will fade away like uh, labor uh, pains of a woman in labor. Once they're done and the, we hold the baby in our hands, all it's forgotten and we rejoice in the new life that we have in the presence of God. Glory, hallelujah. We are His friends. Noah was a man of faith. He was a preacher of righteousness. He was a friend of God. He was also a savior of the world. I won't uh, go too much into this. I mentioned this last time as well when I dealt on uh, the previous chapter. Uh, but by building the ark, he saves humanity. By saving his family, he saves humanity. He saves all the animals that uh, God brings to him. And he does it by an act of obedience. This is something that is emphasized uh, in Noah's life and especially 
in the life of Moses, who is another type of Christ and another type of a Savior. Uh, you read in Exodus again and again that Moses did everything that God commanded. And our text this evening ends on that note in Genesis uh, chapter 6, that Noah did according to all that God commanded him to do. And then uh, the next chapter, chapter 5, and Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. His obedience, his obedience resulted in other people being saved. Remember the words that I read to you this morning from Isaiah 53, 11, where uh, God says, my righteous, my righteous servant shall justify many. My servant is righteous. And because he's righteous, because he's obedient, because he keeps the law, because he fulfills all righteousness, many others will be justified, will be saved. And that's, that's one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that, uh, that we, we get a picture of Christ in the life of Noah. We see the obedient servant of God who, through his acts of obedience, uh, brings salvation to all mankind, because because of his obedience, you and I are are here today. You know, if if he had been disobedient and God had ended it all, then we would never have existed. But we're here and we're rejoicing in the promises made to Adam and Eve because of this man's obedience. He's a, a type of Savior to come. And then the final thing that we need to keep in mind is that that God confirms His covenant with. Uh, Noah. Verse 18 says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Now, if you're, if you're uh, observant, you'll notice that uh, there's a discrepancy in the words used in my sermon title and Genesis uh, 6.18. Genesis 6.18 says, I will establish. And I've said, uh, God confirms. God confirms. Now, why, why the discrepancy? Well, if you go back to the Hebrew and you look at what the Hebrew word is and you look it up in a Hebrew dictionary, the first definition that it will give you is confirm. The Hebrew word means confirm. But English translators are reluctant to give it its normal meaning in this context. When it appears in other places in the Old Testament, yeah, they, they readily translate it confirm, but they're reluctant to do that here. I have a suspicion, and I, I can't uh, confirm it, but I have a suspicion that, you know, translations are made by committees, and I think uh, sometimes the committees are dominated by dispensationalists whose covenant theology is not uh, reformed, who see uh, uh, God's covenant with Adam as a different covenant than God's covenant with Noah, which is a different covenant than God's a covenant with uh, Moses, which is a different covenant than God's covenant with David, which is a different covenant than God's covenant, new covenant in Christ. All different kinds of covenants with different positions is sort of the dispensational point of view. And so if they were to use the normal meaning, it would imply some kind of unity between the covenantal relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. Of course, Reformed and Presbyterian scholars have no problem uh, saying that there is a unity in the covenants of Scripture, that they are like a flower that opens up 
uh, and uh, blossoms. It first, the covenant first appears as a tight uh, bud, and then uh, as in the history of Revelation, it opens wider and wider and wider until it comes to full bloom in Jesus Christ and the, the new covenant in his blood, which is the same covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, but come to fruition, come to fullness, come to its complete beauty and fulfillment in Christ. And uh, it's for that reason that I want to emphasize for you that this word could easily be translated confirm because uh, I want to emphasize the covenant continuity in Scripture that, that what God began in the garden with Adam and Eve is what is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and confirmed in each successive uh, revelation of the covenant as it comes to expression uh, in Scripture. I want to emphasize that so that you understand that, that God keeps his word. He's a a God of his word. And you should never doubt his word. He is uh, yes and amen. He is true in all that he says. Not one of his words ever falls to the ground. He has promised to bless all those who bless him. You know, the last verse of uh, of Psalm 63 If I can just look at that uh, quickly again. The last verse says, uh, Everyone, uh, but the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. Uh, King David is writing this. And he's saying, he's saying, the king shall rejoice in God. Is he talking about himself? Yes, he is. But he's, he's also speaking about the king of kings, his descendant who will sit upon his throne forever. He knows that he will have a son who will sit upon the throne forever. And, and that king, King Jesus, will rejoice in God because he says everyone who swears by him, who swears by the king, who may, swear, who may we swear in? In whose name may we swear? We may not take oaths in David's name. We may only take oaths in God's name. And Jesus is God, so we may take an oath in in Jesus' name. And whoever swears by his name, by the king's name, shall glory. That is, shall experience glory. That's, That's God's word to you. If you honor Jesus Christ... But that's, that's what it means to, to swear by His name. That's one way to honor Him. If you honor Jesus, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, honor Him as the Lord of your life, you shall share in His glory. That's what the psalmist is telling us there in the last verse of Psalm 63. That's His word. You can be sure of it. But you can also be sure that if you do not set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, if you disdain Him, if you reject Him, if you turn your back on him and you do not repent, then again he will keep his word. And there is waiting for you the outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, where the worm never dies, where there is continual misery, a lake of fire that never stops burning. It is too horrible to contemplate. But God is a God of his word. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. May God indeed lead us to such faith. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Noah, a man of faith, a preacher of righteousness, your friend, a a sign of the Savior to come.
and one with whom you confirmed your covenant, with whom you renewed the covenant, so that uh, indeed the promises made to Adam and Eve should not fall to the ground but be fulfilled. O Lord, we pray that we may uh, uh, see in Noah a picture of your grace and your love to us in Jesus Christ and rejoice and be glad and be drawn to Christ more and more. In his name we pray. Amen.